You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. You know, Father Paul, I was listening to your recording, The Rise of Scripture, and there are big topics and there are seemingly small topics. And one thing that popped out for me was this idea of being saved under the regime. You were talking about Esther and comparing it with Exodus, and you were critical of scholarship and the way that they don't pay attention to certain details. Could you talk today about this idea of being saved under the regime and its importance for the Pauline school? Yes, definitely. And I think it's of the essence. Uh, Let me begin by saying that both Jews and Christians are always excited about the book of Exodus and liberation from servitude. And all this goes back time and again, I say to this anthropocentrism or nationalism. It's either I or we and we're liberated, and we do whatever we want. Number one, let me begin with the Exodus. It is simply incorrect, because God saved Israel from the servitude of Egypt to his own servitude. In other words, they were slaves in Egypt. He makes them his slaves. In Exodus 20, he says, The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. But then in Leviticus, he says, for to me, the people of Israel are slaves. They are my slaves whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And this is of essence, Paul will repeat this in Romans chapter 6 unequivocally. So to get out of the impasse, we should learn not to hear scripture as proof texts, and we all do that across the board. We pick and choose, take the Christians. They get excited about the fourth book of the New Testament, John, or Luther gets hung up on Romans, those who are waiting the end on the book of Revelation. And I believe the only way out of this impasse is to realize that the scripture, and I'm concentrating on the Old Testament now, is a story. There is part one, which is the Torah or the Pentateuch, and then part two, which is the prophets, and then part three, which is the Ketubim, and the Ketubim is scripture. Actually, this is what Ketub means in Hebrew, scripture. It is scripture. It is not secondary to the law and the prophets. And that will get us out of the impasse. We have a movement. We have the law, which Israel did not follow in the land of the promise. And Israel was punished among the nations again. So we go back to Genesis chapter 10. And there among the nations, God takes care of them. The return is never to the old Jerusalem, but to the new Zion, where we have the will of God fully implemented. By the way, the tripartite is very clear in the preamble to Sirach. And then Luke 24:44, we have a tripartite Old Testament scripture. So if we follow the storyline, we don't read a book before the other. 
I mean, usually we can't do that. You can't read Joshua and Judges before Exodus and Deuteronomy, obviously. But then when we go to the prophets and the Ketubim, we start suddenly to pick and choose. And I would like to propose a reading throughout that culminates with the Ketubim, where we have Psalms, Job, Proverbs, and then Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther, followed in the Hebrew canon by Daniel, and then I'll comment at the end, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and Ezra and Nehemiah, actually, Ezra and Nehemiah, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. Now, if we look at these five books that are termed as the Megillot in the Jewish tradition, we have Ruth, where we have the importance of the nations. Ruth is a Moabite. The Song of Songs, as I explain in all my books and my commentaries, that it is inclusive of the nations. And then Ecclesiastes, nothing is of import except the law. And the Lamentations about the earthly Jerusalem, which is followed by Esther. And here I would like to say a few extra words about Esther. Number one, and people have noticed this right from the beginning, we have not once mention of either Elohim, God, or Yahweh the Lord. They are totally absent. And by the way, this confirms my thesis that the scriptural God is inexistent. He doesn't show off. He doesn't appear. He's not egregious. And this, in turn, is underlined in the two names of the heroine. And again, names are essential in scripture in the original language. Her first name, Hadassah, appears only once, and then it is followed by Esther. Very interesting. Now, Hadassah is from Hados, which is the footstool of the throne, meaning that she is reflecting the fact that everybody is under the footstool of God, but you cannot see God. And very interestingly, in the book of Revelation, we have the throne speaking at one point. This is so classic in scripture. And to underscore that, the second name, which is her classical name, is Esther, which is Hifail, the causative form, from Satar to hide. I make something to be hidden. And again, this underscores the fact that we have the hidden God that does not appear. And yet, he does something that tops what he did in Egypt. He saved his people out of Egypt. Here he keeps his people in Persia and saves them there, meaning you don't need to leave. I'll take care of you wherever you are, should you abide by my law. And coming back to Exodus, it's very important to remember that God took Israel out of Egypt to bring them to this mountain where he would give them his law. And the prior prophets show us that the people were kicked out of the land of the promise because they did not abide by the law. Now this reappears again in the book that follows Esther. And here notice that I'm following the structure, the flow of the Ketubim. Daniel, number one, is not among the prophets. He is among the Ketubim. 
which reflects the judgment of God. This is what Daniel means. And here Daniel is all the time among the Babylonians and then the Persians and ultimately Greece at the end in chapter 11. He doesn't leave. And yet he is the main person that represents God. And notice right from the beginning, because he followed the dietary rules of the law. And after Babylon, Persia, and Greece, Greece in chapter 11, we have the end coming. It is as though this is where God is going to appear to Israel and the nations together, wherever they are. And at the end, and I'm convinced of that, and I repeated it in my latest books again and again, that after Daniel, we have interestingly, and in the following sequence, Ezra, Nehemiah, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And this is so strange that the Septuagint put 1 and 2 Chronicles after 1, 2 Kings. In other words, it read it historically. But for its own reasons, I don't want to enter in the Septuagint now. But we're used to that. Always we say, let's read first 1, 2 Chronicles and then Ezra and Nehemiah. But in Scripture, it is not so. And what is striking is that the opening of Ezra is picked up at the end of 2 Chronicles, which is a reference to the edict of the Persian king liberating the people. But that's very interesting because when you get to the end of 2 Chronicles, literature-wise, you are brought back to the beginning of Ezra. In other words, coming back to the earth of the promise is no guarantee that you're going to stay there. Because should you sin, the judgment of God is going to apply. So your salvation ultimately is precisely in following the law that liberates you from your being slave to a stranger, to someone else that mistreats you, please reread Romans 6, to being the slave of the good and beneficent master. He always remains the master. He's at no point, you know, pops or daddy or anything of the kind. He's the master and Lord and judge of all. And should one accept that, then one is safe. And this is the message of Paul that was captured at the end of Acts, where we hear that Paul was sitting under house arrest. Let's remember that. But he was teaching there and people came to him and whoever accepted the message accepted and whoever did not, did not. And he does this for two years, awaiting the third year. And the third in the Bible is the third strike, the third day, the coming of the Lord. That's all one can do. So I think we should learn to dismiss this ancient Greco-Roman approach to being liberated in the open. And this is where I believe the book of Esther is very important. Can one imagine a book in the Bible where we have absolutely no reference to God or the Lord? So Father Paul, listening to you talk, I'm stuck with this idea in 
the Corinthian diptych, but especially 1 Corinthians, where Paul insists that wherever you are when you hear the gospel, you have to stay as you are. It seems to be an idea that's deeply connected to what you're talking about in Esther. Absolutely. That's what Paul understood. And at this point, I would like to go back to the Ketubim and mention the book of Job, which is with Psalms at the beginning. And thus, these two books give the tone of the rest of the Ketubim. People, again, misunderstand Job, imagining that at the end he is in a better situation. No, he is brought back to the situation in which he was at the beginning, meaning that he was born outside of the earth of the promise and lived all the time there. But he was connected to the scriptural message because he followed the law as we hear in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And at the end, when he repents of his arrogance, he is reinstated and that's it. And he has to continue being there. So what you mention about Corinthians is technically all over the place, and Paul got it from somewhere. You don't change, you just change the master, and it comes from him, and this is the good news. The good news is that he is good. That's the good news. <laughs> we Orthodox have this in our tradition, where we refer to him as the monos philanthropos, the only one who is good and loves humans. As you talk about human beings as slaves to the Lord, I know this causes some translation issues in English where sometimes it's translated as servant, sometimes it's translated as slave. Can you explain how to deal with that translation issue? Yeah, here again, people try to get around it by using bond servant instead of servant. Simply, this is not what the Hebrew Abed, and we still have it in Arabic, and the Greek zulos mean. That's all that I'm saying. It's a situation, in my book I refer to the fact that a servant chooses to be a servant. A slave does not choose. You are a slave. And it's a question of a relation that the master owns you. And God intervenes in Exodus by saying to Pharaoh that you don't own them, I own them. In Esther, he upgrades this in saying that I own them even when they appear to be under your ages. It's very powerful. And this is precisely what Paul says. I would like in this regard to quote a very interesting passage from Psalms 125, 1 and 2. Listen to that. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved, but abides forever. But listen to the following verse. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from this time forth and forevermore. I want to repeat that. It is the Lord that is around his people. Now, the Jews and the Christians don't talk like that, because notice us, when we come to the congregation, we assume that we are around the book of the gospel. We protect God. We are around him. That's not what Psalm 125 is saying. And this does not apply except in shepherd literature. Although the eye tells you 
that the flock is around the shepherd. But if you look more intently, if you are in the Syrian wilderness, the flock is not around the shepherd. The flock is behind the shepherd. He is the one that protects them. And I may add with his voice, which is expressed in the law as we hear in Jeremiah. So Richard, it's a question of changing our mentality to fit scripture, not to force scripture to fit our mentality, meaning that translations, I know I'm extreme on that, should be banned. We have to make it so that people would hear the original. And I believe you are the one who mentioned to me an email lately that your professor who teaches in South Africa told a black colleague, a woman of his, to make their own translation of the Bible and not to count on the white people who are there. And this is how they enslaved them. You sent me that email, <laughs> which goes along the lines I'm trying to draw. What you say raised another question for me. In the end of chapter 8 in Esther, it says, And in every province, every city, wherever the king's command and his decree went, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people acted like Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Is this then talking about how now the Torah has begun to go to the Gentiles, because now Gentiles are becoming or acting like Jews? Yes, because technically the word Jew, especially in the Ketubim, take Job. He was a Jew, but outside the land, disconnected from the temple and from the area. It is the law, and Jews stress that. I remember an article, I believe it was a long time ago in the New York Times, I'm not sure, but a Jewish rabbi criticized the movie about Moses animated the prince of Egypt. What's the name of that director? Spielberg. Spielberg. And Spielberg is a Jew. And the rabbi said, I remember that was many years ago when I was teaching and I shared it with the students. He said, it's very wrong to present Moses as the savior of his people. The savior of Israel is Joseph, who saved both Israel and Egypt from famine. Moses is the lawgiver. He was sent from that mountain. Remember, he was from Midian originally, from the desert, and he was a shepherd. He was sent down to Egypt, and even his people did not accept him at the beginning. He was raised by an Egyptian princess. It's very impressive. It didn't matter because his mission was to bring the people to this mountain where they would be granted the law which they were supposed to abide by. So your point is very well taken at the end of Esther. It's the presence of the law that brings the blessings. Notice in our tradition, the Orthodox, you know, the, the book is always on the holy table. It is covered, but technically when we come in, it's because it is brought from the outside in the entrance. But you have to put it somewhere, so you leave it on the table, but covered. It is only when it is uncovered and opened that it is heard. And this is the voice of God that protects 
his people, he is around them. A nice example to give nowadays is the, what do you call it, this surround audio system. See, we can find examples. So my take about God that he speaks through a surround system. <laughs> He's around you, you're not around him. Biblical surround sound, Father Paul. That's something that we should trademark. Okay, you know, I'm getting better in my old age. Fantastic. You know, we're out of time, Father Paul. And this was a great session. It's important, I think, for our listeners to understand that this is how scholarship works. This is a point that Father Paul keyed in briefly in a longer lecture, and we're happy for the opportunity here to go into more detail. And I think that's the key, that for everything that seems like a small point, a step in the ladder along the way to making a broader argument, there's hours and hours of analysis and research. So, Father Paul, once again, we're honored that you would take the time to open that curtain for us and help us look into the details behind your scholarship. Thank you very much. It's always my joy. Have a great week, everybody. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.